Welcome to this week's episode of Being Human. I'm here with Eric Pilon Bignell. He is the author of uh, Surfing Rogue Waves, a compass to navigating the disruption of the fourth industrial revolution, how to paddle out into the 21st century. Eric, uh, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. <laughs> So we were just just chatting before we came on, and this has been uh, a kind of an extraordinary blow up for you, right? You've gone from a being a PhD student to having this book that's ended up on Forbes, and you're you're just telling me they're having to restock it. So it's 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 uh, must be quite an incredible uh, yeah journey for you. Yeah, it, it really has been. I think we were chatting about it quick, and I, I was never an author, and never thought I would have been an author. So the whole exercise for me was was very challenging. I was very quantitative in number and you know, went through engineering and English wasn't even my first language and, and coming through to this and writing a book and for anyone who's never been an author, you, you, you finally finish this thing and you get this moment of like, I'm not sure, you know, like you're not exposing yourself to the world, you're putting it out there and you can't take it back once it's out there. And it, it's really nerve wracking in a way. And yeah, the response has just been incredible and better than I could have expected. And here we are. Suddenly I'm, I'm, I'm honored. Uh, humbled to be invited to podcasts like this. Yeah. So, so, okay. So let's, I mean, we're, we're obviously we're going to get into the main thesis of the book, uh, uh, which I'm really looking forward to, but like, just talk to us a little bit about like, the, the process. So you're, you're an, you start off doing engineering and then, then, then like, what's the PhD in and how did it you know, ended up as a book? I'm kind of interested in those steps. Yeah. So I formally, did engineering. I started out kind of as an engineer. I, I worked, uh, again, none of this was planned. I just kind of improvised my way there, I guess we'll say. Um, worked as an engineer for a bit. Did Wanted to move more to the front end. Did my MBA in information systems and technology. Uh, it kind of continued down that road. Worked, uh, got back into you know some consulting on the engineering side and, and product commercializations and taking product to market. Moving kind of closer and closer to, I guess, what we call the front end. And I got in, uh, I, I fought at the end of my MBA, you do kind of like a, a thesis, not really, but it kind of left me with way more questions than I had even coming into it. And one of the ones I really fought was why we tend to never notice change while it's happening. We notice it after it happens. You know, and here we are talking in Zoom and our whole house is collected, you know, connects some voice assistant. And none of us ever signed up for that or voted for that or anything, but here we are. So that kind of led me down this, this path which led me into my dissertation in which I kind of really started to study the complexity sciences to understand a lot of this interconnectedness. And more importantly, I wanted, I'm not, I wouldn't consider myself an academic, I guess. I wanted something pragmatic to come out of it. And when you do your actual dissertation, it needs to be bulletproof and, and myopic and very small and specific, right? You know, specific executives and global organizations, and a specific part of complexity within an organization. But, and that was fun and that was great, but it felt incomplete in purpose. And, and that was the ability to repurpose it into the book where this bigger picture applies to so much more than just executives and organizations, because this very much parallels what's going on in our life. And, and that's the kind of road, I guess, somehow unplanned that led me all the way to where we are here. And um, yeah, long story short, upon that completion of the PhD, I, I wrote a book. So, so, the, so the MBA became a PhD on that specific topic. Is that how it worked? Or Yeah, it, what I wanted to do for the MBA eventually became 
the PhD. So what I wanted to do for the MBA, they kind of said, hey, stop that. This is just, you know what I mean? This is way too much. Do this little thing, get your MBA. And, and one of the best advice I actually got from my father um, when I was fighting my PhD was that same thing. You want to make, you know, you want to solve so much. Um, and he kind of just said, look, here's the deal. Just get your PhD, do whatever they want, get your PhD. This is not academic of me, so I'm sure professors here are not going to love this. Get your PhD and then go change the world after, right? Because otherwise, you're going to be doing your PhD for seven to nine years trying to solve the world. And the problem is what I want to get into. It could change three times over in the next eight years. Mm, right. If I don't get that through, move forward and, and keep going. Um, and we were chatting about it quick. That's kind of what I love about the epilogue end of my book is I feel like I could rewrite that and re-release it every four years because I might be right and I might be wrong on a few of them. Um, so that, that was kind of the advice that got me into my PhD, but also got me through it and, and repurposed it with a bit more purpose into this book. Right, right. And, and the basic idea was that we're, like, we're not noticing change. Is that, was that like the driving idea here? Yeah, if I had to bring it all up, the 3,000-foot view, is yeah. we don't notice change as it happens for some reason, right? And if you look a little bit forward, and we understand um, exponential technology and trajectories, and we understand complexity and how that kind of works and nudges and shapes. And here we are at this crossroads sitting in the middle of this forecast of advancements of robotics and AR and VR, right? Material sciences and sensors. And, you know, if you think of them individually as these waves, they're all starting actually to come together and collide. And that's what creates a rogue wave. Um, and it collides with everything from 3D printing and blockchain and networks. And now you're layering artificial intelligence on top of it. And we have this explosion of rogue waves that are starting to happen right now. We might not be noticing it, right? And the amplification of all these waves, um, you know, from all this kind of convergence is going to make for the craziest, you know, what I call surfing conditions humanity has ever faced, but the craziest kind of rogue disruption we've, we've ever seen. It's happening faster than we've ever seen. Right. And so that, that's your, so is it, so is it still, is this almost like you're trying to shake the world and say, you know, wake up? Is it something like that or? Yes, absolutely. You know, I think at the end of the book and we discussed it and I like that it does that is the biggest goal, the biggest takeaway is if we just, if we have more people having these conversations, just talking about it, because I think traditionally in the past, we, we thought they were very technical conversations, but they're not, right? We're seeing social and systematic problems that are, you know, hitting tipping points and boiling over. And that's what complexity is. One, one little change in nanotechnology and neurotechnology does completely unleash an entire new development in, in AI. But we've also got larger, longer term human problems, right? What, how are we going to deal with living longer, right? What if happiness, we do all this, we have so much more and we're not any happier. I mean, is it really worth it? I mean, there are large like philosophical problems that we fought for a long time and we don't have the luxury of the thousands of years, like when we were chatting, like can't have, right? We have humans have infinite worth and things have finite worth. And well, now we have humans and things blending together. So what, what do we do there? And a lot of these, we've had thousands of years to, you know, think about these and we've evolved biologically over, you know, long, tens of thousands of years as well. But going forward, if we're experiencing 100 years of change in one year, I mean, that's, you know, our biological evolution, it has to experience a step change as well to keep up with all the change, at least our minds do in the short term. Right. Okay. And I mean, it's what's interesting in the book is you, you cite several examples of how, in spite of all this change, we're not we're not getting happier, right? You, you cite South Korea, right? Which has gone through this industrial, you know, crazy industrial, you know, a very rapid industrial development and its suicide rate has gone up. Right. 
Yeah, and it's it's kind of across the board. We've seen that, and it, it's why, and it affects a lot more than technology. We, we see campaigns, uh, you know, in all different parts of the world of you know going back to the way they were, or, you know, this this kind of push away when really, you know, COVID nineteen is a great example of how pathetic or rigid, archaic, individualistic systems are. We can't handle. We can't. All the world can't do different things with certain technologies. We've kind of done it with nukes, where we just made a deal and said we don't want to all blow each other up. But we're having these conversations for a lot of this new stuff coming because it is a global problem. You know, you can't develop some of these technologies differently. You know, where you're sitting on the other side of the pond compared to where I'm sitting, because you know, if some of these, if you get ahead of the game, it's going to be different. But also, you know, morally and ethically, cultures can be even different. So we don't have this unified where it's okay to, you know produce super athletes versus someone who doesn't well eventually in the world if someone's using gene editing and the other countries aren't the one with gene editing is going to produce you know smarter faster you know healthier humans they're going to eventually take over so we, we we're not standardizing any of these conversations i feel as much as we should be right okay um and so I mean, I mean, I suppose you're right, isn't it? And I was because I was thinking about this, and you, you, you know, you've got this line in the book where it talks about, you know, if you want to stay close-minded and live out uh, the shitty end of your life, then you're kind of welcome to that. <laughs> but it's almost like you're telling people, like, you could, you could have your <laughs> shitty life, or you could get involved in this conversation. I was like, well, hang on, man, but not everybody necessarily needs to get into this conversation do they like i think well you know isn't that something that we entrust our ethicists and our technologists and our futurists to kind of and potentially you know if if we dare to our politicians to figure this this stuff out you know why do you feel like like we all need to get engaged in this i feel like there are so many different angles to it right and um Yes, a, a bit of a bit of shock value, obviously there as well. But but I think different experiences, and that's kind of what I like about the book in the framework. Right, my wife, for example, is, is a chiropractor, and her lens when she looks at that and thinks about it and explains it to me is something I completely didn't think of. Right, and, and the next kind of breakthroughs and advancements aren't going to be in a silo by a specific kind of person. I think it's going to be a collective consciousness that needs to kind of help and move this and understand this right through complexity. We can't predict exactly, but we can generally shape the movement through complexity. And, and that that's a bit of what I mean by having these conversations. Otherwise, to your point, you are entitled, but you can't come back in 10 years and then complain all of a sudden because you didn't want to take part in where we were going. Um, and that, that, that's a bit of a hard, hard kind of problem. Um, Hard line, I feel like everyone should be talking about it. You know, to your point, like, well, I'm not a futurist or I, I don't know AI or development or algorithms and they kind of step back. But a lot of these problems, like we just talked about quickly earlier, they're not technical problems, right? There, there may be social or cultural problems. or there's all kinds of things that we are so interconnected. We can't decouple anything anymore into this is a developer's problem. And this is a futurist problem. And this is a scientist's problem. It's, it's an everyone's problem. Right. Okay. And um, and it's it's also these are also I think the other point you're making is these are problems for our lifetime, right? Like this isn't something that our grandkids are going to need to figure out. Right. Some of these I advances, think, well, are happening. I suppose that's your point, right? They are happening to us in our lifetime right now. Yeah, they're happening right now. I think in the previous industrial revolutions, you know, we 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 damaged and polluted the planet and kind of pushed that off to future generations. Uh, some of these things we're dealing with, we're not going to get to push that off to future generations. Right? Things that are seemingly impossible, impossible for us 
probably means 30 to 50 years now until we figure it out. So we're not going to get the luxury of just throwing this on to some future generation down the way. You know, we've got tipping points and everything from these technologies that are, you know, could augment or each other and converge at any point. But we've also got ecological problems and we've got, you know, systematic problems across the board, not just in governments, but government trust, company trust, all time low, right? I mean, science itself is under attack here, but then we've got this education system that we're trying to bring these children up through and it hasn't changed in over a hundred years. I mean, we're experienced with things have changed quite a bit in a hundred years. Yet here we are batch processing kids the same way we've always done it. So these are all the, the, the you know, you could be a, a, a teacher who is, is stuck in this old system. And these are people who need to be having conversations and changing the system. I, you know what I mean? The teacher understands how that works better than I'll ever understand. And that's what I mean by like, all these people have to be doing this. Otherwise, you know, sitting status quo is just going to, you know, you might just either get crushed by a wave or float out there in the middle of nowhere, but either way, you're not surfing. So, Right, right. And so when you, and when we talk about like the conversation that we need to all be having, like, how would you characterize it? Like, so what does that, you know, what, what do you mean by that? Um, I think it's going to, the takeaway is different to different people. Um, so someone might look very big picture and think how that works. Someone, you know, in my example might be, you know, a teacher who starts to, you know, think through and how, how do we, how do we fix education? So it's more with the times and every now and then we get these forced disruptions and sometimes we're ready for them. Sometimes we're not. I think education is a good example. We've had kids uh, who have been forced to go work from home, for example, and Unfortunately, it hasn't been as successful as we thought. Now, had we been more prepared and more adaptive and more ready for that, it could have been a great success. Um, organizations, for example, moved a lot more to work from home and actually saw a lot more success. You saw some you know, lifestyle balances increase. People were happier. They were actually more productive. It was the opposite problem. You almost had to put boundaries on how to stop people. Whereas young kids, it's not the same. You can't stick them in front of a computer, as, you know, an eight-year-old. For an hour, never mind ten minutes, and expect them to engage. And they need they need different elements, right? They need they're developing. They need the social elements. They need all that. So these are just examples of it's coming, and we're not if we're not ready for them. You know, we were sitting here and we had this again unrelated. We had this infectious disease, COVID, come by, and what it did was it just side railed all of education because you know unrelated, but education was sitting there without a surfboard, and a wave came, and they had nothing you know nothing to do about it. So. Right, right. So you're going to look different for different from from different people, um, but then yeah, you, you're referring to this metaphor of the, of, the, of course, you know, the central metaphor of the book, you know, being a surfer and 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 being prepared for these rogue waves. So let's perhaps let's get into that a bit then. So you know, what do you mean by being a, a surfer and like you know, how does this metaphor work and relate to our lives and and what we're experiencing? Yeah, I think. So the, the framework at its core kind of challenges us to rethink thought, right? So much okay. of, of, of what we think about is, is constrained in our past and present social systems and ideologies. We need to stop our previous ways of thinking and rewire our brains to think faster, more creatively, you know, especially about what comes next. Instead of being prescriptive and steps required to succeed in the future, the surfing framework acts the opposite. It empowers you to use it as a lens to kind of lead way to the creation of your future, you know, in the realities of your everyday moments. 
this isn't about predicting an ideal situation or a definitive scenario, right? It's rather opening our minds to kind of the possibilities of how we can shape the future around us. And this, the serving framework requires us to serve and, and be, as we've kind of talked about, get in there and do things it, instead of falling victim to modern day traps and old concepts. For example, censorship used to be a matter of blocking information. Now, censorship works by overloading us with information, right? This creates division. This leads to people spend their time analyzing and debating topics instead of taking action and addressing them. So the serving framework arms us with more than just knowing what to focus on. It lets us know what is worth ignoring. In previous industrial revolutions, like we talked about, right, power was really created by the access to this information and data. And we saw this where, you know, privileged countries and worlds excelled and lesser third world countries did not. In the fourth industrial revolution, having power is knowing what information to ignore. And that's the big takeaway of, of the lens of framework. Right. Um, so, so, when you, so, so you're saying it's, it's about a shift in how we think. But it's also about like learning what to ignore. Uh, but those are, those are slightly different things, right? Aren't they? Because you could, yeah, there's, there's, you choose to ignore something, right? But then, but then this question of how changing how we think, what, what, what do you mean by that? Yeah. And, and maybe we unpack just quickly the framework and we can yeah, keep sure. picking into there a little bit. And, and at a high level, and complexity creates these these waves in our world, right? The oceans of yeah. our world. And through this complexity, we identify specific places we want to be in. And then in our, in, in a system, in an organization or in your life system, there's this pressure between these two systems, the abstract system and the functional system. The pressure between these two spaces is rather uncomfortable, right? It's, it's like being in the barrel of a wave and, and complexity is equally exciting and terrifying, but it's counterintuitive to think we have to keep ourselves in this uncomfortable pressure. And to do that, this is where we need to improvise constantly. We need to make sure we're improvising on the, the proper beliefs to drive our decisions and actions. And that's the rationality element of it. So, you know, what allows you to improvise in these barrels, as I continue down the, the our metaphor example here, is the foundation you stand on. That's your surfboard, right? So to ensure you remain in these barrels, you must rationally improvise. And your surfboard is that foundation that's going to create your decisions and beliefs, which need to unfortunately map back to the accuracy of the world. Um, and that's how we kind of create that rational improvisation, right? How do these barrels, um, when do we know when to lock in on them and surf? And when do we know when to pull out, right? Because it's a riptide or it's a toxic situation and, and life's going to throw all kinds of waves at us and same in business, but we have, you know, you brought on great speakers on complexity and, and, and complexity sciences in general, but this book focuses on a specific part of a complex system, right, of interest kind of between this, I mentioned it quickly, this abstract and functional system in our world, right? And that it's that pressure between these two systems, consciously and unconsciously, real or perceived, that creates this tension that traditionally in our lives we've been trained to get out of, um, but we should actually we should be hunting this down. This uncomfortable space is where we adapt, we evolve, we grow. It's where we see innovation in organizations. It's where we challenge and grow ourselves personally, and it's where we address very uncomfortable topics that maybe we don't want to speak about, like a lot of these trends we have coming up right now, where it might just be easier to keep doing what you're doing. But the reality is, this is going to affect us in our lifetime now, and that's we don't have as much of that luxury. So. There's, there's a lot there, but if you think of it as that, you know, the Venn diagram, you've got that complexity in your life. That's the ocean and the waves and everything. You've got 
a surfer who's able to surf through all this. And that's, you know, very much improvisation. And then that third part is irrational foundation, which is your surfboard, right? And, you know, how do we, how do we not notice change happening until after it happens? Well, for one, you know, complexity. And that's kind of that first part of the framework. And it's really a, where the framework overlaps in the middle, you get this kind of byproduct of a space we're speaking about, but it's also where you see disruption. And with disruption comes you know, innovation and growth and adaptation and all these great, it's great. Right, right. So there's a lot, there's a lot in there. So maybe let's just start with what do you mean by an abstract system versus a, a functional system? And then you talked about the tension between them. Maybe yeah. Um, yes. So in surfing, and this is going to go with the metaphor, and then I'll, and then I'll unpack from there. But in surfing, that cylindrical area created by the wave breaking is called the barrel. Yeah. Um, the, the ultimate move in surfing is to kind of put yourself in that barrel and ride it while the wave breaks. So fitting metaphor of what we're trying to look at. In, in complexity sciences, it helps to understand specific systems of complexity. And in, you know, in these systems, we have, uh, and there's, there's uh, you know, complexity leadership research on this and, and lots of other stuff. And I've just named them for, for the simplicity of the book, the abstract system and the functional system. And the abstract system is in life and in organizations where learning, creativity, innovation, growth, this happens. The functional system pushes for your standardization, formality, structure, performance. And these two systems are essential because they help us identify in the complex system where we want to evolve and grow. And it is in this kind of this tension, this barrel of disruption. So if you take the entire ocean of complexity, we're looking at a specific wave. And within that wave, we're looking at that tension right in the middle um, where, you know, you become a better surfer, the more you can learn to do that. Now it's counterintuitive because you're almost putting yourself in a danger, but that's how you become a better surfer. Right? So that, that abstract systems, carefree, you take risks, right? You get creative, you dream, you, you envision all your goals. You want to, you know, live this great life with new, no boundaries, but then we have the functional side. It keeps us in our job, we pay bills, we follow laws, taxes, right? We plan for retirement, all that, you know, fun stuff. And both systems are kind of in constant competition. You see that in organizations, but even in our life. And we did. We grew mm -hmm. up learning to move them back to the functional space as fast as possible. Functional space is a linear functional system. It's easily understandable. It's predictable. That's what we like. That's the mechanistic, you know, leadership things that came out of the 50s where we just wanted people to act like machines. Now we have machines, unfortunately, so we don't need that as much. Um, but we're more comfortable when we're in control. And we're less comfortable when we're not in control in this middle where... But what do I do next? That's what improvisation is. It doesn't, it sets you up to best succeed, maybe what to do next, but it doesn't tell you how to do next. So in this, in this tension and this, this conflict is where disruption and innovation and transformation happens. And, you know, residing in, in the extreme, you know, abstract system is, is pure chaos. Chaos theory and these things are, are very different than complexity. And if you operate in the, other, other extreme, right? You know, it's pure order and you can never transform and grow and transcend into the future anymore in pure chaos or pure order. You can do it in pure chaos and you're just hoping it works out. And in pure order, you just can't keep up with exponentials in, in a linear world that's very sequential. So humans, you know, we are creatures of habit. We, are, we unconsciously stick to our routines. We see this all the time. This is our functional system at work, right? Our evolution, we talked about this. It's It's based on primitive survival, making us naturally risk averse. So every, every new approach means an unpredictable outcome, higher perceived risk. That's that, that uncomfort we see in, 
again, in organizations and taking risks and innovation, but also in life. And the primary role of pressure, which is why we look for the pressure, is it moves the system out of equilibrium. We want to remain, you know, on this extreme functional end, but, you know, that, that tension is, is incredibly important because we actually have, we want to be moving the system out of equilibrium. We just want to be shaping where it goes to. And that, that, that pressure and tension is really the footprint of complexity that framework helps us look. Every time you feel pressure, doesn't mean you're in a barrel, right? You know, not necessarily. We want to look for the correct type of pressure and it unpacks all that fun stuff. But long okay. story short, that's the complexity piece in there. Yeah. <laughs> and then in terms of rewiring our brains and, and talking of, and changing how we think. So, yeah, how does that relate then to what you've just described in terms of the, the functional and the abstract systems? Right. So we've got this system. So how do we best, how do we best navigate these systems? And this will yeah. lead us in. So we've got this barrel, which we know is key to adaptability, innovation, growth, reinventing ourselves, taking advantage of this kind of adaptive tension, creating creative outcomes and all this great stuff. Means we have to embrace this uncomfort, right? And, and, and just stating all that is no, I want to give a pragmatic approach. Okay, thanks, Eric. Now what? Um, and the next logical question is how do we navigate through these barrels of disruption, right? With the lack of information and facts and data, you know, at the moment. And for starters, that's improvisation. The world we live in is, is complex, meaning it's, it's diverse and interconnected and interdependent and constantly changing and adapting. And the one piece we can certain, you know, we can only really somewhat control is how we adapt to all this complexity and we identify that you know in a specific part of complexity but we do that through through improvisation right, right. that's why you know kelly slater i think i talked about in the book you know we've seen this example with lots of athletes but what made kelly slater the best surfer in the world he's not a he's not a free physical specimen Right. He had, you know, you see this all the time. He's got, I guess we call it surfing sense, but you could insert your sport, you know, which is an easy analogy. And what really happened is he would just anticipate, you know, what would happen on the water and he would react to it faster than the competition. He could, he could gather, process, understand massive amounts of this, this complex information instantaneously. Instead of seeing linear connections of waves forming, right, he would fluidly all the time make all these little minor predictions and adjustments and breakdowns and reformations, and you could see these patterns developing, right, not not just with him, but the waves and the other surfers and where his score is at the time. And there's a lot more than just any single thing. And like in the same way, I respected jazz a lot more once I learned how it worked. But the, the same way jazz evolves, they have this loose framework, but then they go off and they play it themselves. And at the end, you have this incredible creation. That's very much what we're seeing with athletes who always tend to be in the right place at the right time. Right? We, we see this with highly paid athletes. They have this ability to do this. I'm not saying they're consciously thinking about it, but it does help for us right, to think about how we can set ourselves apart and how to constantly, consciously improvise and improvisation on its own has again some great research around it and, and the book explains a little bit of how we can improvise how we do at the moment and that's very much why the surfing framework is a multidisciplinary approach i think it's very hard to solve broad problems with single you know theories concepts um so it kind of includes the three of those uh so as we skipping on how we do improvise because we can read the book and unpack that quickly you know <laughs> To transcend, which I think is, is where you're going to lead me into my next question, and you can pull me back if it's not, is, you know, we've kind of got to keep these systems on still, on, on tilt, right? Like our life system, we've got to keep it, we've got to keep challenging it, pushing it, and we need to keep ourselves in these barrels and improvise and make these decisions 
in the moment without, you know, efficient amounts, uh, you know, insufficient amounts of information. And that second pillar is improvisation, understanding that helps. But if we're doing all this and it's not rationally mapping back to the reality of the world, we're not going to do it right anyway. So that, that third piece, you know, rationality or rational decision makings or beliefs. And I didn't want to use just decision making theory because like we chatted, it's very much done in a vacuum or in an academic sense, but in the real world, you might act irrationally on purpose to beat the competition, right? To, I don't know, look good in front of your date. There's a, there's all kinds of things that, that will lead you to that. And like any system putting, you know, bad information in, you know, garbage in, garbage out. If, if you're not rationally improvising, then you're not going to get the proper outcomes. So it's not right. enough just to improvise. We've kind of got to rationally. Yeah. Yeah. So what I suppose we're starting to emerge right now is it's almost like coming back to that idea of changing how we think it's, you know, maybe, maybe it's something like we've got this tendency to want to lay things out in our mind about how things are going to go and like put it all in a, in a sequence. And as our, as the change of, you know, the world speeds up around us, that's going to become, uh, I suppose, a less of a productive way to think. Right. Right. And so this is, it's kind of something like dancing between that way of thinking, which puts a lot of value in what we can predict and like laying things out in a sequence versus just, kind of letting go of that and almost allowing ourselves just to sort of be absorbed in like what's happening like right now, like what's happening, you know, what's happening now, a bit like Kelly Slaker's he's, he's perhaps not, he's got to come somewhere between thinking about, okay, I've seen a wave like this before and I reckon I can do this trick and then that trick and that trick. Like there's something that's perhaps happening, but he's also just allowing himself to be in the wave. And as you say, like sensing for the different shifts, um, uh, he, he's probably not inquiring as to which cognitive bias he might be employing no. as he <laughs> leans forward on the board or whatever. So that's where my, my, my sort of train of thought runs out of steam with that. Yeah. And I think, and I think that's what the third piece helps with. So to your point, he has to be in the moment. If that right wave comes, he's got to go, right? You can't overthink the next wave either. And, you know, but so like his decisions are our, our decisions, you know, Richard, you, me, but, let's take, you know, bigger picture of humanity They define ultimately who we are and what we become, right? And that kind of collective consciousness or like the emergence of all these collective decisions we're going to make is ultimately going to define the future of humanity. So it works, it's how it yeah. got us here, it's what will get us moving forward. And the way we think and the beliefs we hold that affect our choices and affect our actions on how we improvise are aren't always we don't always think where those come from right so mm. you know we have this this uh you know we have a spread of, of fake news misinformation or suddenly why does it feel impossible to kind of understand the truth right right do we see people we all know them we all have them on social media they're impervious to facts it seems like you know the final part of that the surfing framework to your question kind of packages that together and how we can help to do that. And to your point, there's, there's no perfect answer, but, you know, and we understand biases and I think they've been written on and explained in detail, right? We've got errors in our mental architecture. There's all this great, great stuff in there and that's okay. And that's all fine and, and dandy, but the reality is our brains are the best tool we have 
to kind of measure and understand the move, you know, the world moving forward. And it's not probably calibrated to the accuracy of, of our beliefs. I wanted to go one deeper than, than the bias, even if we identified the bias, um, you know, this, this, this shortcoming, you know, manifests as cognitive biases and those things are all okay. But, you know, what do we trust if we can't trust our brains, I guess was the question, right? And, and humans are irrational. We know that thankfully we're predictably, you know, rational. We don't have to unpack all that, but um, everyone makes human, you know, humans are wholly rational. Okay. So the four times we're over that. Right. Um, but, you know, I feel like all of us understand and we see things on the news or social media, you know, that we, feel like we can't believe more people aren't talking about that right confirmation bias is telling us you know can you believe this and you know social media is this this personal extension of oneself and it's 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 very much it wasn't around 20 years ago right so when you when you debunk misinformation um even when it's done with like incredible polish and tact you're often enraging the individual who's you know been duped into this possible pseudoscience, right? And it kind of tightens their grasp on it because th these aren't bias problems. You know, these are errors in their beliefs. But when, you, when you're doing this, this newly formed belief is wrong. It might not map back to the accuracy of the world, but you're attacking this person. You're attacking them, who they are as a person. And we don't put that much thought into our beliefs, right? For a belief to be correct, and that's why I use the word belief, we've got to anticipate it. We've got to anticipate the experience in the world, right? We, if we, and we can't anticipate everything directly, right? Most of what we come is from general understandings. I, I'm looking at a screen right now. I see you. I, I believe I'm speaking with you. However, I don't see the atoms that make up my monitor. The atoms are in fact there, right? These indirect experiences very much affect. So these are things we do need to understand. And most of the things we, we can anticipate are, are caused by things we do not directly see or experience. Yeah. And if correct, we can map our beliefs, accurately map back to how these things Right, go in the world, and I, we don't. For the most part, we should be asking ourselves, "What are our beliefs, and how well do they map back to the real world, and how much trust are we willing to put into that?" Right? You know, you, you might not believe in science or gravity, but if you go jump off a cliff, it's not going to turn out well for you. So, it's it's less asking what we should believe and focusing on what we should anticipate. Right? We should be we should be questioning our beliefs more, most likely, um, and and we probably don't because we 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 build off going forward, but. A lot of times we don't we don't come back to how how we form these maybe beliefs in the first place and and, and that gets into you know some of these other fun improper and free floating beliefs. If if I map a bunch of things that are correct but they're based off something that's not, not right, you know, the example we talked about was we climb up to the top of a mountain, we're gonna jump off and parachute off it, and I tell you it's two hundred meters high, and you say, Okay, great, you do all the math and we understand how far we're gonna fall if we're two hundred meters high, but you know, in reality, if we're much lower than that, all of your math is still wrong. We're gonna hit the ground before we deploy our shoots, right? Versus you know, another example of I can come up here and I say, Oh yeah, we're you know, we're a thousand meters high. And you walk over and you'll throw a rock off the edge and look on your, you know, I'm it quick and you'll say, No, no, we're three hundred. You know, at this point, I can say, well, Richard, you're entitled to your own opinion, but I think I'm a thousand meters high and I'm going to jump off. Well, that doesn't work out well for me. Right. So there's a lot of these, um, you know, that's an extreme example, obviously. Yeah. Um, yeah. But it's a kind of across the board in that, in that regard. Right. And we don't always challenge and rethink kind of these free floating and belief and beliefs.
yeah and that i mean that's right and i don't i don't spend a lot of time consciously and actively and i yeah, i guess most people don't their own, own beliefs because it's you know to some extent we rely on having a relatively stable set of beliefs i'm guessing i believe to maintain right. our sanity right like <laughs> there's probably right. only only many only so many fundamental beliefs i have about reality that i can you know challenge on in one tuesday afternoon right it's <laughs> right right <laughs> right well and and i think and again it's not it doesn't mean we just throw away our beliefs <sighs> But I think it's okay to challenge them, right? I, th- I think, you know, the more we shift away from made-up beliefs, which which is crazy because there are some very obvious ones that we just decide not to talk about, and then we just run the, the rest of the world in, in, in a very pragmatic reality one, and then we just don't speak about some of these other ones. But, you know, some of these inaccurate beliefs, um, you know, don't don't anticipate what happens in the real world. And that can be, you know, it can be political. It can be, you know... Culturally, it can be societally, it can be in organizations, it can be in your everyday life, and it leads to deeper problems, right? Many beliefs only require you to commit to the self-deception of, you know, overlooking the beliefs and beliefs. And, and what I mean, it, you know, is when someone's believed something for generations, it kind of sticks without question. You just don't question it, right? Some of these yeah. concepts have been disproven historically, and, you know, many of these beliefs, you know, maybe have changed and they're still not accurate because they're more what we want them to be, you know, yet we kind of persuade and, and, and breed generations at a young age to just kind of believe in this. And because of that, we don't, we, we see people who are building and finding ways and, you know, and a lot of this, and this is why we're seeing, you know, facts don't change their mind. I, I read the book. I think the example I use is Aunt Karen, because we all have an Aunt Karen, I guess, um, is the way to do it. But, why is it right? What, how do we deal with this misinformation you know, that Aunt Karen's posting on social media? And it's it's a it's a real problem that's a new, very new, evolving problem. But I feel like it goes a layer deeper than a bias, if, if that makes sense. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So I suppose what might just to bring this to, down to earth, and is there an example in like in your life where you've like actively like looked at one of your own beliefs and like allowed yourself to shift in your belief and that's allowed you to improvise in a different way like i wonder if there's a way to tie this together with uh an example from your own life yeah i i find myself doing it more and more and more um and, and again not right not wrong but consciously being aware of these things makes me kind of rethink and rechallenge things i think we're, we're going through so much so fast right now you know politically and again, a bit of your comment about like, you know, if you don't want to change, you can live out the you know shitty end of the rest of your life. You've got dogmatic in everything, you know, politics, but any other, you know, extremes, rights and extremes left. And dogmatic, we can't work on these people. They've made their mind up. They don't care. Honestly, they'd rather just die than you'd be right. So, you know, we, we spend your time where we can kind of thing. But but, but isn't that arguably a, bit a dogma, right? <laughs> Yes, exactly. Right. Um, yes, in a way, contradictory in that, in that sense as well. But I think where, where I find myself using it is we're, we're going through so much. So politics is one where, um, again, I, I, I'm Canadian. I've lived, I've lived down here and, and worked down here in America now for six or seven years. And Canada fights the same problems you guys do over there on the other side of the pond. The U.S. is, you know, obviously big media. And we see that, you know, these extremes. And I find myself you know, 
agreeing and challenging some and agreeing and challenging others. And I see a lot of people who it does, it's, it's almost like you're cheering for your sports team. It doesn't matter if you're right or wrong. So I'm, you know, yeah. I'm a Toulouse fan, which has been a curse from birth, but like, it doesn't matter what I'll tell you they're the best team, even when they're not the best team, I will tell you. Right. The best team. But this is different when we're looking at the outcome of how we want to live the rest of our lives. You know, we've got to be a bit more open to that. And I find myself, whereas when I was younger, you know, I felt like I was pretty confident in my political views. And now I've kind of rechallenged and I find myself very much lost in, in politics, I guess, maybe in that middle no man land where, you know, you agree a little bit on both sides or another one was, you know, we get we get faced with with hard decisions. Uh, all right, there's a vaccine. Go. It's an mRNA vaccine. You know, and all of a sudden you're sitting here going, well, I don't know if I'm going to put this vaccine in. And I, should I or should I not? And you've got one side saying, yeah, do it, save the world, think about humanity. And, you know, you've got this other side saying they're poisoning us and they're going to they're going to trace us and track us. And what it's, it's, it's hard to unpack it. But you, you when you can challenge both sides, you can go in and you can weigh and you can say, wow, that looks um, that, you know, wow, I can't believe that many people are getting blood clots. But then when you look at like that's nothing compared to the amount of people who, you know, get blood clots from cheap smoking or secondhand smoke. Well, then I don't feel so bad. So it, it lets me, you know, instead of being never knowing what I'm doing and feeling anxious all the time, right, it lets me kind of narrow in my decision. And ultimately, you know, I think what's frustrating, some people fight with it is, but they want the answer. And there is no answer, right? We don't, we don't, we don't know exactly what the vaccine will do 10 or 15 years from now. But if you can get yourself to a point where you're comfortable and confident enough, right, in, in what you want to do, then you're okay with either not getting your vaccine or getting your vaccine. Um, and, you know, that's not a, a medical conversation. That's, you know, a great example of, of, of using a bit of this. And that's the hard part with this, this, this fake news we're seeing everywhere, right? It's very much uh, the acceptance of kind of incorrect beliefs are proportional to governance. You've got this peer-reviewed research, which removes bias, and it's great. But it's long and it's slow and it's tedious and half the time. And it also has a crisis of its own, right? The 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 reproducibility crisis within science, isn't it? Like something like sixty percent of papers don't can't be reproduced. Results from papers can't be reproduced. Right, and so there's there's the longevity piece of it. So even if the research comes out, then the next one, if they can't reproduce it, and that's that's what's great about theories is you know like general relativity. You know, we've been trying to disprove this for a hundred and something years. Still haven't figured it out. We feel pretty good about that. But to your point, like when you have this new stuff come out, then we've got to keep kind of keep challenging it. And it's this unknown where you've got to get yourself to a comfortable enough position. Then we've got the media and the news, which is this middle. You know, you can pretty easily vet out extremely biased media outlets, in my opinion, but they're still trying to be fastest to the punch, right? And there, you know, there are there are good journalists out there, but you've kind of got this middle zone, then you've got social media. Social media is just free and fast and unfortunately um, often very incorrect. And and everything we're, we're talking about here builds off what we used to say. We used to say knowledge is power, right? And that comes from, you know, this deficit model we used to use. Uh, and it's built, the, the process isn't the problem in this case. It's oh, us, sorry, the, right? the what model? The Steph... Steph. Deficit, sorry. A deficit model, yeah. So what do you mean by definite model, sorry? The the deficit model um, kind of, and that's what I mean, this is the model we we use in in research of science. I don't mean hard sciences when I say science. It could be social sciences. It could be anything. And that's, I'm going to put something forward. I'm going to reproduce it. I feel good about it. If you come to me with new facts or information, I will either update my model, right, or I'll, I'll throw it out altogether if it's wrong and we find a better one. And, and that's okay. Um, but 
the process isn't isn't the problem here, right? Where this deficit model fails with with misinformation is because it assumes we're irrational, right? And our beliefs are correct. And the research, you know, that that that's coming out on this stuff is 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 showing that it's, you know it's not as important conforming to kind of cultural values. Cultural cognition is more important than than often being right. And mm. you know, when we spread untrue facts, stories associated with you know partisan position or narrative or who we are, you know, through this misrepresentation of information, this fake news aligns with, you know, how we see ourselves in the world and and, and how other people see ourselves in the world. And social media, you know, puts this on, on hyper mode. And yes, then our confirmation biases come in and they blind us and we start reinforcing ourselves and our perspective. And, you know, these are the times where we're saying at this point, you know, your fact checking is research is quite out there, you're, you're probably, you know, unfriending or kind of unfollowing at this point. Um, or you try to do the right thing, maybe and correct these people. And there's an, you know, a disastrous meltdown, uh, you know, on, on, online and because you are attacking their real world decisions, right? I think I call her and, and, and Karen, but you're attacking her decisions and actions on her beliefs, right? Like your, your, your fact checking presents, an emotional argument that challenges and threatens, you know, the very meaning of, of who this person believes they are. And this happens to everyone, right? You, me, you know, regardless of what side of the political spectrum you're in. So that's a bit of what I tried to go down and we're just, it's, it's, it's new that we don't have enough of the research on what we should do there. You know, sometimes they say, even if, even if you tell me something and I'm open to considering that, when I go back to my world, unfortunately, I don't read that much peer-reviewed and I scroll through social media a lot more. I revert very much back to my original thoughts. So I think just that rational foundation maybe helps us try to get out of that in the first place. But um, this misinformation, unfortunately, through complexity, we understand it gets it gets much worse than embarrassing. You know, I think the example I give is, you know, Karen blowing up her phone in the microwave or something. But, you know, this misinformation gets dangerous because... You know, yes, if if our Aunt Karen charges her phone, you know, in the microwave to prevent this 5D G that's, you know, broadband that's tracking her because, you know, it's 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 what they're using, COVID, which was invented by Bill Gates, and she puts her smartphone in there and blows it up and you know. Obviously, if you correct her, you know, it's it's obviously it blew up because, you know, all the corporations are out together and there's some big world conspiracy where none of our countries can get along together. But apparently we're all in this world conspiracy. But these same drivers, they very much also convince extremists, right, and nationalists. And, and we're talking about, like, bomb-making manuals that are shared or conspiracy theories or, you know, justifying systematic failures of the past and, and terrorism and racism or, you know, manipulating kind of these weak people and creating, you know, homicidal tendencies in them. And the misinformation is a lot more than just this, you know, fun, you know, so-and-so being an idiot and blowing up online, I guess, is what, is what it builds into. And that's, you know, that's, that's a real problem. Yeah. Yeah. No, so so several things are coming to mind here. Like the first one you you mentioned how like this idea of cultural cognition or like we we're more motivated to fit in than to be right. And I remember a study where they, they, they had people um, <sighs> describe the length, I think it's the length of a pencil or something. Right. And, 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 but they had stooges in this experiment. Right. So like, Eric, you go into this thing and there's like five of you have to guess the correct lengths of the pencil. And like the other five of, of the people, it's something like this unbeknownst to you 
are like lying and saying, oh, well, it's this, pe- let's say it's this pencil that's the longer one. And you're like, well, no, no, that's definitely the shorter one, right? But yeah. everybody else is saying, no, no, it's the longer one. And they do a couple of rounds of this and eventually you flip, right, to fit in, like consistently, whatever it is, they, you know, the majority of people flip and they start saying, yeah, yeah, no, that is the, that is the shorter pencil, right. but it's clearly because of that, you know, that deep seated, you know, need for us to fit into our social group and, and that can bend our rationality. And of course, you know, that with the measuring the, the pencil, whatever it was, plays out. And then, as you say, I think that is on hyperdrive on, on social media because we, you know, because we, we're surrounded by these cliques of others who believe like us and, uh, and it becomes dangerous to identities to not, to go against that. And it's, it's, it's thousands of years old, right? Back mm. back in, in the Roman days, I mean, they just had to convince people to, to do good and not steal and kill your neighbor because there was no way, if everyone just did that, there was no way of controlling it. So we needed to instill beliefs. Important, it was important back then, right or wrong, to just make sure we were all together and working together for the greater good. You know, now we fast forward, we're changing a lot faster than we did back then. You know, in the, in, in the 1800s, if you, if in 1800, in 1830, if I asked you how much would change, the reality is very little would change. If I'm taking you today in 2021 and I asked you in 2051, would it be very much the same? It would not. There would be a lot more change. So we're just experiencing so much more than we were just a century or two ago. And we still have these very much built in, you know, I don't want to say bias, but, you know, thought processes and beliefs that they've been built into for thousands of years. Um, so it's it is it's an it's a it, that's the the rewiring and rethinking a little bit. You know, sometimes we're very academic and we want to understand bias and think that, but we need to look inwards at ourselves and think even deeper. I feel in a lot of these. Yeah, things. and one of the ways that I do that is I, I like constantly try and find like as much as possible like the extreme positions on any political question. Like I'm I'm, I'm like actively seeking like what's the most extreme right position on this, what's the most extreme left position, and like actively trying to expose myself to to the arguments from both sides um and it can be uncomfortable like it can be uncomfortable yeah. for me to get actively go and read like a newspaper online which i know isn't going to align with my values but i'm like i, I kind of like force myself to do it because um because i want to have that challenge but yeah is is that part of you know what we mean by trying to i guess because what you're talking about is like verif- this. I'm, like, I'm thinking about this surfboard, right? And if it's partly, you know, the, the, its stability to some extent is rooted in how close, as you say, cl- how closely our beliefs match reality. Then I suppose one of the ways to do that is like constantly like see- seeking out like different ways in which re- reality is reflected through different, you know, political viewpoints. Let's say, yeah, polit- political viewpoints and, and all kinds. Of examples we've had we've had in the past, right? I, 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 I unpack a few examples in the past. Obvious things that we thought we would go, you know, you have a. I think the example one of the examples that I used was you have a, a, a toothache or a headache and a, and, a, and a toothache. And in the past, we would go see, depending on how far back we go in our culture, we, we would see it. Yeah, go talk to the fairies or we would pray or we would do something. And sometimes it worked. That. Right, and then we would say, "Oh, great! So that's what we need to do at work." But just because that's why it worked doesn't mean it work. You know, the other times you died. Well, now we we have science which we can understand and map back to accurate beliefs on how this works, and it, we just simply remove wisdom teeth now. 
right? We clean the area. There's no infection and no one dies from impacted molars anymore. You go back a century or two ago and people did all the time. And it was, it was because we didn't understand why, why we were dying from impacted molars. But as we learn more, we have to be open to, to changing that and challenging that. And at the same time, to your point, you might go read an extreme position on something that you don't fully agree on and instinctively, and I'm guilty of it myself, I'll, I'll pick off the second line and I'll disprove that. And I'll just throw out the rest of the argument in the article. But the rest of the argument in the article might not be wrong, right? If I'm wrong about one thing, it doesn't mean I'm also wrong about everything. Um, but if you can understand if the foundational thing it is being based off is wrong, then I know the rest of it is wrong. Right? And that's, that's, a, bit of the, that's, a, that's a bit of what lets you kind of go deeper. If I know that everything you're basing is off this point and this point is wrong, which is a lot harder to dissect, obviously, in the way people manipulate numbers now. Yeah, to what extent by your your classification of what's foundational and the validity of that, like, it's... Right. it's, <laughs> it's yeah, and, there, and, and that's, that, that is opinionated sometimes, right, and not others. Like, our example is we can have all these things, they can all make sense, but at the end of the day, if I foundationally just believe because I've climbed way longer than you that we are this high and you went through a rock and timed it and said, mm, we're this high. Like if we jump off that using what I'm thinking that we have a thousand meters to fall and you're telling me we have 200, but not, nothing, even though everything else I say is right, it doesn't matter. I'm going to die hitting yeah. the ground before I throw my, my parachute. Mm. So there are mm. some, and, and it's never that black and white, obviously. Uh, but what we have to do is to the best of our knowledge and, and we've kind of got to react and move forward on that because we have all this change. And what happens if we don't is we just end up debating these things forever. And there's never any action. And there's never any change. And, you know, if you go out into the ocean and you just sit there, you're never going to surf. And, you know what I mean? And, or, or you'll just get yourself in a bad position and get crushed by a massive wave. And that's a bit of what we're at. We're at, we're at a, a pace in, in humanity where we've got to we've got to try to, you know, we're never going to be able to keep up with the change, but we've got to move a lot faster than we have in the past. We just don't have the luxury of, of time like we did in the past. Yeah. And I suppose that's the balance here, isn't it? Like, yes, it's important for us to go, go and, you know, inspect our beliefs and challenge our, you know, our, our beliefs about reality, but also like one of the ways that we do that is by taking action in the world, right? Like that's, you know, so it's finding, and you know, there's another complexity theorist who talks about, you know, Dave Snowden, who's been on the show, talks about this idea of the safe to fail probe, right? Like designing experiments where if you do wipe out it's not a thousand meters jumping off a mountain it's right you know it's 10 meters or, or i don't know like five meters and you can test you know the accuracy of your measurement in a safe context uh and work out from there and you see that all the time right in in, in this fabric of reality by the time we make an action it changes again so it's it's this yeah. constantly changing and evolving piece, and you, you see it in businesses and, and fail fast. And you know a lot of the agile, you know, you know, sprints we're running now in organizations are to do that. But you know, we don't apply those to our life. So traditionally in business, probably and in life, we would sit down, we would plan everything, we'd get all the money up front, we'd lay it out in these steps, and we'd hope for the best when it's done. And then all of a sudden, these small little organizations that you know some kid started in his dorm college who have now taken over the world, they just fail fast all the time, but they didn't have these catastrophic fails. They had these little ones, right? So if I push and challenge all the time, that's okay because I'm getting a yes or no, yes or no, yes or no. And I'm slowly making my way better to understanding what, what maps back better versus if I just wait 
like the old days and theorize and, you know, drive myself insane like you know, Nietzsche would do and spend 50 years trying to solve this one problem. I mean, if I'm wrong at the end, we just wasted a lot of time. So to your point, I think this allows you to very quickly, without being a, a large theoretical, academic, complex system, it's just this little surfing framework where you're doing these little adjustments all the time. And I think these little challenges and little things, the more you just program your brain to think through or question or stop or check yourself is, is all helping versus trying to figure it out, you know, the, the way we've traditionally done it in the sequential steps with this big bang where we hope it works and it doesn't. And if you look, even in business, right, that's why improvisation is picked up a lot more, at least in the last kind of decade, is we're seeing that. About 11%, you know, I think, of executives are happy with the outcome of their planning. In, in the rest of the time like, yeah i saw i saw one stat from the book 10 to 30 percent of planned strategies are executed i thought that mm-hmm. was also interesting right. yeah and there's lots of great research on that excuse me and what it's showing is the importance of what you're saying right improvisation and constantly kind of moving and i think upwards of they're they're showing now like upwards of 90 percent of our decisions are are advised on a daily basis and they don't seem important but they all add up to something right we kind of learn that all these nudges are, are directing us through complexity so that's kind of why the three pillars are there is understanding them really helps at least I tried um, in, a, in, a, in a very simple way that you can just always kind of use with you. You don't have to think not a big commitment. It's more just this lens you're using anytime you're trying to look into the future. And, and it, it helps you pick off changes that's happening. You understand what to look for and you see it. Yeah, it makes sense, right? We, we talked about it when you have fun at the end of the book with, with the worms um, just now before we jumped on, right? You know, ah, it's just worms, but I mean, if we can, you know, increase the lifespan of a worm by 5,000%, yes, a worm and a human are very different. And yes, in the past, that might have taken 200 years. But, you know, if we're going through 100 years of change in one year, that means in two years, we might be augmenting human. I'm not saying that's the case because there's a lot more complexity. And I think more interesting questions but like... definitely there should be some squirrels out there who are going to get lucky. Right, yes. <laughs> yeah. 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 Squirrels, and they're going you know, to live to 50 or... Yeah, hopefully not snakes, um, but there, there'll be some other ones in there. Uh, but and it, it might never happen, and that's okay too. But I think we just we need to talk about these instead of just hoping it will never happen, right? Because you know, IVF fifty years ago, if you grabbed someone, they would have told you you were insane. Common practice now, and you know, the things we're moving into are much faster than that. And I'm not saying they're right or wrong, and I'm I'm not saying, you know using CRISPR and gene editing cells to remove sickle cells so that no human ever experiences that, I mean, that might become a law, right? But we have this terrible inability of fixing humans and upgrading humans. And we've seen it across the board all over the place, right? We invented plastic surgery to put soldiers back together. And the, what keeps the plastic surgery industry alive is not putting soldiers back together. It's, you know, breast augmentations and facelifts and noses and things like that. So that. That's that slippery road we we push ourselves down and it gets it gets scary with some of these ones because now we're we're not we've been the constant through all the change in all the previous industrial revolutions we're now changing the constant right we're we're, we're coming into era where these technologies and sciences are changing the human right maybe living longer maybe gene editing you know you might be against gene editing you might say well I'm not gene editing my kid well. If I gene edit at my kids, it's all about keeping up with the Joneses and your kids are never going to get in school. They're never going to be as good at Yeah. Are you really not going to gene edit your kid if everyone else is doing it? You know, do, do, do different countries do this versus not? There, there are a lot of questions that we need to start. This change is happening and 
we're not, you know, you mentioned who and why everyone, you know, these policymakers, they should be having these questions. I'm not, they're, they're on, they're much deeper understanding in that than I am, but you know, are we driving everyone to kind of be having these and their lens to the point we said earlier would be very different than the lens I would have or you would have, right? Like a policymaker or a scientist is going to have a, you know, gene editing scientist is going to have a very different lens. And if you speak to a gene editing scientist, they're going to say, no, this is going to save the world, save humanity. And if they're open to it and you say, here's the slippery slope, they're going to go, ooh, yeah, maybe we should put governance around this, right? But not too much governance that it stops innovation, but maybe we should have some or, you know, and there are other ones we talk about, like artificial intelligence is a great one and how it's developed and built. And, you know, we kind of have to be proactive with a lot of the ethics we build around these things. And our systems are not proactive, right? Our, our legal system, you know, tries you based on previous cases. And we're not going to have that luxury as we develop a lot of these technologies. Or you can't have a different way in which you're doing it than I'm doing it, than someone in South America is doing it, than, you know, the Russian government's doing it. Because that allows for different speeds at which we kind of can develop and innovate these technologies. There's a lot of slippery roads that aren't technical ones at all. I guess this is the way. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I mean, I, I, what comes to mind is, is reading something a few years back that, that was suggesting that Chinese were, were pretty close in working out the intelligence genes and that, that, that you know, they, they might not be far away from creating like 200 IQ babies. So, uh, Right, if they do that and all the other countries do it, and suddenly, you know, there, there are a couple of standard deviations above the rest of the world in terms of their population and their intelligence. You yeah. know what? You know, that's... that's uh, and, and Yeah, that's changing. In, but yeah, like, I guess what what I was thinking was, like, I, I kind of think... And I kind of whimsy, oh, yeah, I remember reading that a few years ago. And like, and then you sort of put it to the back of your mind, right? But as, I guess the point you're making is with these exponential changes. And, and no, no, that could really, like... That could very well be a wrap you know, a reality within the next two to three years or something. And I suppose that's something, you know, I continually forget, right, that the speed right, at which I these mean, things can emerge. It was a couple of years ago. So it could easily be, you know, two to 10 years ago. And the other thing is a lot of it's going on right now. And, and the way a lot of these um, convoluted neural networks and machine learning and a lot of these AIs kind of learn and teach themselves is through data. And we have very different privacy laws on our data, whereas, you know, China was your example, they have not. Government owns all the data on everyone all the time. So in theory, their forms of their artificial intelligence systems are going to learn significantly faster um, than we can here. And we've got this weird thing in the U in the US, we have to opt out. In the EU, who again EU views themselves as more progressive, they actually make it so that many of you have to opt in to give your data. But you know, if, if, if you're looking from a purely developer standpoint, that is a very big disadvantage for Europe if you're trying to develop these convoluted neural networks that need more and more and more and more and more data. And well, China's full on hypermobile. You don't have a choice. They just do whatever they want and they've got more, you know, facial, facial recognition going on than ever. And we're not all developing these things with the same ethical standards or debates. And what, what one culture thinks is okay, another one might not. Right, yeah. you, you and you and me might say, "Well, it shouldn't make a difference whether you're a male or a female." And we have other cultures in this world right now that are like, "Actually, it does make a difference." And the women should always be, you know, eight steps behind the male, and they should never do anything other than work in the house. And, well, we're, we're, you know, how we how we develop some of these future things are very much going to affect that. And depending on who starts to lead that development, will will very much, you know, 
change. And I don't know if we're having anywhere near enough of those conversations. I think traditionally we've been like, well, we'll just leave that one to our governments, which, you know, I don't think anyone's throwing their hands up right now and doing that. But I feel like more than ever, we're able to take part in these conversations. We're seeing movements now that would have never been possible and 20 years ago, right? And I think more than ever, you know, as we kind of bring a lot of these problems to the forefront, we can address and give them attention. And when they get attention, they get, you know, everything. They get the policy change and all that kind of stuff. So. Right. So, yeah. Yeah. And I suppose, I suppose perhaps one of the differences there is that we've, we've tended to get animated as a, as a populace around like current political, yeah, stances, right? Yeah. We, we, we'll, we'll go out onto the streets about, you know, this, forthcoming policy change about x or y what we're not doing generally is having conversations about what might come you know in five or ten years or in a few years based on exponential changes in certain technologies like that's just not something we talk about generally right we will talk about like the tax rate or like this or that you know policy and we don't talk about it until it's here yeah but the argument is when these things are here you know that's that's you know if we take 30 intervals and I'm going linear and I go hundred on the first one, I'm up, you know, you go one, I'm a hundred ahead of you, right? Then I go 200 and you go two, I'm killing them 200 to two, you know, and we keep going, we don't notice it. And then all of a sudden, you know, I'm at 30,000 at our 30th interval, which sounds great, but you're at a billion. And now my next 31st step, I can't catch a billion. I, I cannot catch you. Right. So it's at this point when that exponential technology is at, you know, a billion and I'm at 30,000, I can't 10x it. 10x it doesn't get me there. I need you're at a billion. Your next step is doubling that. I mean, once this happens and it's taken off, then we can't start talking about it. Then we can't hit the streets and right take stances because that the, the proactively shaping some of these ethics, right? Our, our values will do that, but the ethics are very much the laws and you know the laws in different parts of the world. Back to the you know bit of the framework, whether you believe in it or not doesn't really matter. It's in a way like science, right? You don't have to believe you know in the laws of rape and murder, but you're going to jail for rape and murder. You can't do that. So they're not even just very technical things. They're things that we need to kind of get our head around, and those are very different when you're talking about exponential trajectories and in complexity, which means we don't have the ability to know exactly where that'll happen. We love being in control. We love you know predicting things. We're terrible at it. What's even scarier is that, and exciting, by the way, is that we have exponential technologies that are converging and, and colliding. And that's, you know, two large waves going together is a rogue wave. What's amazing about a rogue wave is this, is this, this phenomenal emergence that is unpredictable. Depending on which ways the wave collide, we don't know which way it's going to go. It could be high, fast, hard, sharp. It could be low, long, pushing. That's kind of what we have coming. And generally, if we know, you know, we have these waves coming, we can somewhat prepare so that if they come our way, we can do something. Otherwise, if we're just sitting there not expecting anything and a rogue wave hits you and you're, you know, you're sitting in your little tube, you're not going to do very well. So it's, uh, it's, it's interesting, but it's not doom and gloom, you know, and again, I, I guess I'm cheating and going on both sides here, right? Like, I think there are a lot of things that are scary. I think they're for hopefully further away out. I also think so many incredible things are going to happen, right? I think we are going to remove so much pain and suffering and, and incredible things that not that long ago, you know, people, the best examples are people who used to lose loved ones to all kinds of stuff not that long ago that in, that in the very short future, well, no one will ever have to go through that. And that's, you know, that's incredible. I think we're going to change the world in so many incredible ways. And I think what's great is 
if we understand these, we can actually use these to solve seemingly impossible problems. Right. Which, like death. <laughs> right. Like death. Um, or death is one, you know, that we're, I don't know if we'll ever solve it, but we're going to chase it. Right. We're going to like push, push that out as much as we can. Uh, we've got the smartest minds in the world working on it. And I think one, one great thing about humanity, when we put our minds together so far, at least on solving something, we eventually kind of figure out a way to solve it. Um, and, you know, when you look at all this, you look at what, what the genome project was $10 million or $100 million in 10 years. I mean, now you get that for a couple thousand dollars and they do it in an hour. What's great is it's money also goes further and where there's innovation, there's money. So I feel like we have so much great potential. But if we're not, if we're not driving these discussions, a lot of this development and advancements is going to be driven by quarterly revenue reports instead of the way it should be driven because it's going to be an organization, right? That's going to go get more money to do more and they're going to have investors and they're going to have to, you know, hit numbers and that's going to drive the development, which we know is good and bad, but you know, we don't want our life, you know, in, in the hands of quarterly revenue reports either. Right. So. Yeah. And I think that's an important point you make because you talk about like the six D's, you know, right. In, in the early part of the, of the, of the book, you know, characterizing this, this fourth industrial revolution, one of which is demonetization, right? So things get cheap, cheaper right very quickly it gets cheaper very quickly and that's right. something again i sort of find myself falling into a trap of yeah we can think about designer babies and living forever but yeah that's going to be for like the not not the not the not the one percent not the 0.1 percent that's like the 0.01 percent of the population be able to afford that stuff forgetting of course that the the rate at which these technologies will become affordable um you know is will also increase and so Actually, you know, most people may be able to afford a lot of these things, right, in short order. And, and a bit like the way the mobile phones are. I mean, you see a 16-year-old kid like on a, you know, on a council estate that we have here in English, England and, you know, on low incomes, maybe their families on benefits and they've got the latest iPhone, right? They've got the same phone in their hand as, you know, the CEO, right? And so there are lots right. of inequalities, of course, you know, we, we shouldn't right. step over those, but that one isn't one of them, right? Well, and when you look at exponential technologies, Let's take an even broader look. There are more mobile phones. More people in the world have access to mobile phones than toilets. I mean, right. that, that, that's that's incredible. Like these are basic things we don't think about, you know, in the Western world here because of fortunate where we've been growing up. But but now you have this. And to your point, like once you digitize something, you know, you go through this deceptive phase, which we kind of talked through. I'm at through thirty thousand, you're at a billion, and then. Shortly after that, there's always disruption comes in, right? And we've seen in the obvious examples, but then once you keep going deeper and deeper into that, right? Demonetization, dematerialization, you know, the iPhone's a great example. You know, what killed Kodak? Ultimately, not any traditional competition, right? New market disruption. This thing called, you know, an iPhone or a smartphone came in and all of a sudden it had terrible and the quality got better, better. Now everyone has a camera on their phone and it's Kodak didn't lose to anyone in in, in any of their competitors, their, their customers got sucked, you know, into an iPhone. We, and it doesn't have to be people get freaked out when they're like, oh, well, how do you turn certain things into ones and zeros? I think, I think Peloton's a great example. It's a 200 year old stationary bike. Big whoop. Well, what Peloton's done is they, you know, they have digitized a lot of this service offering. So who's going to hurt? You know, yes, more people will buy Peloton bikes than stationary bikes, but it's not stationary bikes here that should be worried. Right? What about the gyms? Right? What about the traditional ones where we used to have to go there? And now it's you have all this luxury and all this convenience sitting in your house. You can have world-class gym trainers. You can do real-time with your friend competitions. Like You have all this stuff happening. And 
this is all this change we see happening, right? And, and right now they've done a great job because they've actually still monetized it. So you pay, which is hilarious, you pay uh, Peloton and then they actually take your data. That's their data company. That's how they make, make their money, right? So normally what we see in this demonetization phase is why, why is Instagram and pictures, you know, free all of a sudden? And when it's free, it just means you're the products. They're just taking yeah. your data, right? Um, so, and then eventually it becomes democratized. And once it becomes democratized, it becomes very easy. Once you get an app, which is free to put anywhere, you've got, you don't have bank infrastructure systems in a lot of these parts of Africa. It was down in, uh, a bunch of us went and did like Kilimanjaro and we, you know, we went and did a bunch of that. And that's how they do all their banking. It's all on mobile phones. It's a free application that sits on your phone. Whereas in the past, where would they store, right? And keep their money. And like, they're, they're almost like ahead of us in a lot of these kind of mobile applications because you've got this democratized piece where, and we're seeing it hopefully with good things like education, right? You're seeing more and more of these started as MOOCs, but now all the big schools have kind of figured out if they don't, you know, adapt. And Clayton Christensen is a great, um, Gentleman, I, I got to meet. He's like the you know the guy who coined kind of the disruption theory. He, he's the man. Um, unfortunately, he passed away, but I, I got to speak with him a bunch, and he had a really neat one because I it was in Canada at the time, and he was helping with uh, the healthcare there because, like like the UK, it's um, it's not privatized healthcare like in the US right now. But he was saying the fact of that is they don't they're not fighting, they're not disrupting themselves. And at the end, he actually said to me, "I'll tell you what." We were going back and forth and challenging each other. He said, I'll pray for your health care if you pray for Harvard. Because his argument was the big schools, they sit on enough money right now, but 10, 15, 20 years down the road, if they don't get into this kind of democratized education or at least online, like getting it to everyone when they want it and need it, he said, eventually they will, you know, it'll it'll be like everything. It'll be disruptive. And then all of a sudden, no one will care about Harvard 20 years from now. Um, was kind of the argument. So I thought it was neat. Right. Neat. Yeah, but, but that's interesting. What's, what's coming to me as you're talking about that, like and it probably applies to Kodak now and, and and applied to Kodak. You mentioned Kodak, but it, of course, one of the things that, that beat Kodak was Kodak's own technology, right? They developed one of the first digital cameras, right? One of their, I don't know if you're aware of that, but one of their engineers was, you know, had developed the first digital camera. Yeah. And, but but they, but the, again, I'm thinking that is that an example of them not uh, challenging their own beliefs, right? They had a bunch of beliefs about what made a good business model for them. And they, they weren't open enough to challenging their own you know, preconceptions about what made them a good business to accept this, you know, innovation they had right there in their own, on the, you know, in their own doorstep yeah. that they that they didn't exploit. And that's exactly it. And it is contradictory. They didn't do anything wrong, which sounds weird. But if you think about it in any business or MBA course, you follow your highest profits to your best customers. Why would you go and do this slow evolving 0.01 to 0.02 megapixel to 0.04? But what was on the line, which, again, because they didn't use the right lenses and understand disruption was a lot more because when we when the smartphones, you know, digital cameras at first, but then smartphones started to suck out all these. Well, Kodak did a lot more than just sell you cameras. They sold you film. They warehouse film. They developed film. All these industries all disappeared. And they didn't disappear because, you know, Kodak lost to a better camera player. Because if I made film, you know, film chemicals for Kodak and, and I could go to the next industry leader as well, sure. But, you know, if I don't see what my next move is from here, you know, if you're not changing, adapting and evolving, you're, you're dying in our world now. And those, all those industries, all those companies that supported all along the supply chain, essentially, are all gone. And we're seeing that across the board, right? 3D printing, I think, is a great example of, you know, we generally build things and store them and ship them. And, you know, 
it might not quite be there yet, but eventually if we can just print them in our house, what happens to this entire entire industry that does no longer needs to ship and print things when we can just send a digital file, some cartridges, you know what I mean? And I can, I can put out my nice little espresso cup right there when I need one instead of going to the store to buy one. Um, so it's, yeah. it's, uh, these are changes. And again, I don't know exactly how it's going to work. And I'm not saying we're going to print 3d organs every time they fail and, you know, reproduce them overnight, but these changes are happening now, you know, and it's one of those things, like, I just don't know how much of us notice these things until boom, they're going to be here one day. And, you know, I, I'm sure if you told your grandparents, you're going to walk around with this little device in your hand that can access all the knowledge of mankind instantly. And by the way, you can talk to it and they'll give you the right answer. They would have told you you're an absolute psychopath. That could never happen. But that's what we have with iPhones. It's just here. It's, it's, we don't even think about it. It's not even mind-blowing to us that we have iPhones. It's incredible. Yeah, right. but that, that, that's God, is it just another example, isn't it? Like 3D printing, right? I mean, I'm just, I'm just checking in on my own biases here, right? I look at 3D printing and, yeah, there's like a, a shop, like this part of London I used to live in, right? That sells like figurines, right? You give them a photo and they 3D print like this naff little figurine, like of Richard. I can, if I'm sufficiently narcissistic, I can put on right. my you know, desk. Right little bobbleheads. Yeah. And like, I read something like in Holland uh, where they, they 3D printed this house. And like, it's so easy for me to be like, okay, yeah. So they printed one house and they can do these like dumb figurines. Like, okay. All right. Like it's all hype, right? That's just, it's so easy for me to go there rather than thinking, Hey, right. If that's possible now, maybe within five years, I could, I could 3D print my own laptop, right. You know, at home, yeah. like in my garage, right. Which, you know, that's possible, right? You know, right. I'm not yeah, saying it's or, probable, but it, but it's, or it's feasible, right? That that might, you might get there that quick. Yeah. And I think, I think the problem is we, you know, it's the same way we anthropomorphize AI. I think we go to these extreme examples and I hope we get there one day, right? The obvious is like, well, if we can do 3D printing, then, you know, and you can do wet matter, then you can just print food. And now all you have to do is drop a printer and you solve world hunger because you print food everywhere. And there are a lot of steps between here and solving world hunger through 3D printing. And to your point, that same printer, that prints your bobblehead that that company had that they bought a couple of years ago was, was probably $4,000, right? That same printer is now 1000 Next year, it might be 500. And all of a sudden, when it's when it makes sense and we're seeing this demonetization takes place, right, with disruption, we're going to, you can see this sudden shift and it might not be a breakthrough in 3D printing that gets us there. It might be a breakthrough yeah. in, 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 in material sciences or, or nanotechnology or biotechnology or, or AI, right? You know, and any one of those breakthroughs suddenly augments and converges in with 3D printing. And now all of a sudden, yeah, yeah. We walk around, we can access anyone in the world in real time and look at them. You know, we could be in two places at once. Not the way we envisioned it, but you know, you and me are sitting here in a room talking yet, you know, you're in England and I'm in Chicago. So it, it it's not always the way we predicted it's gonna happen, but the change happens. And once it happens, we just like the old example of you know, when they first coined the phrase artificial intelligence and the words were like it, it nothing's artificially intelligent until it can beat a human at a game of skill like chess. And then when that happens, well, we don't, we don't call it artificial intelligence at that point. We just call it technology and we kind of keep moving this, this, this the, the kind of threshold. And, you know, we just don't notice a lot of these changes. But once they're there, we just seem to be okay with them. But I feel like there's some big ones coming and we're, to your point, all these examples, we, we see them coming. We know their trajectory and their past. I don't know if 3D printing is going to be here to stay in two years or five years or 10 years, but whenever that is, it is going to change entire industries that, that 
that the backbone of our you know cultures and countries are built off of. Right? We're we're, gonna, we're taking physical networks of distribution, trucks and roads that we suddenly don't need them anymore. And then you've got everyone else in the world pushing for drones. Why? Why wouldn't you just order a smoothie and have it dropped off, you know, to your house with a drone? And like, there's, I don't know which one's going to hit when, but it's coming. And I, I feel like a lot of times we just hang back and whatever appears, appears and we're okay with it. And I feel like that's going to start happening early and earlier. And we actually have the ability to shape and talk through these things. Yeah. 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 That we, that we forget. So, but, but, but I suppose part of the motivation to want to go have a conversation about it is, is, it's sort of, and I now get the kind of re, rewiring point. It's like retraining ourselves to think in terms of exponentials. Cause that's right. what I'm fine. That's what I'm getting from this conversation right now is I, I, I don't easily think in exponentials like the 3D printing, um, I, you know, that we just, just, just discussed, right? I, it's not easy for me to think through a scenario where that doubles, you know, and I don't know what the doubling rate is, you know, in, in you know, the very, presumably there will be several, right? <laughs> Exponential yep. curves going on with that technology. But I don't, I don't naturally think in those terms. And, and I suppose none of us do. And that's maybe that's big part of what you mean by rewiring. Yeah. And we have hierarchical brains and that has helped us become the dominant race, right? Being able to sequentially do things. And it was, what's very hard is we're moving very much into this world. And right. It's, it's not, it's a doubling it's it, exponentials hits everything. Right. So suddenly when something right now that you and me is insurmountably expensive, it's a, it's a, it's a billion dollars. Why would that like, yeah, that technology is a pipe dream, right? If that, it does experience an exponential change, but we know in 30 intervals, it's going to be almost zero. So now you've got, you know, what, what a hundred years ago would have cost us a billion dollars and you and me can order a CRISPR sample to our homes and, and start it and start playing with it and innovating. So we're going to have so many more great minds, right? Innovating and having access to things only the, 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 the wealthiest or smartest people had access to in labs 10, 15 years ago. You can order it in a kit to your house. And how does in complexity, how does all this sudden, you know, increase in like money going further and, and, and all this stuff, but, you know, more access to more of everything, how does that affect the bigger picture when you start understanding complexity and how these things all kind of pull on each other? It's, it's we've got some rogue waves coming. Yeah, we've got yeah. Yeah. And then and then it's very easy for me to get carried away, of course, down all these tech right. channels and how, you know, wonderful the lives might be. And then you gotta remind ourselves, right? South Korea's suicide rates going up, right? Yeah. Antidepressants about what is it like two thirds of women now, like in, 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 is it in the U S like take, take some form of medication, right? Like, yeah. Like, yeah. I mean, yeah. It, it, yeah. It, it just opens up a whole can of worms that again, aren't technical ones, right? Like I think the aging ones one, but if we have so much more and we're producing more and our happiness levels are literally different, you know, and, and GDP was an important measure hundred years ago when we brought it in, but now, you know, do we want to be producers or do we want to be happy? You know, there are, there are legitimate economists, who, you know, much more than me who make cases for, you know, happiness as a domestic product. Like, should we be, should we, should we be tracking this in our cultures? Because why is it that as we have more, you know, happiness is this weird construct where when you get more, you want more, when you want more, you're not happy till you get more. And we're constantly kind of chasing this happiness. So if we're not, we're having so much more of everything. We're not happier. Yeah. You know, why are we doing it? Right. It becomes kind of the instinctive thing. And then I think the other one is you might be okay with it. I might not, but we're going to start to augment ourselves. Right. And, you know, it might be 
yes, you know, they were dorky, you know, smart glasses and they came on, but you know, really it's, it's just, you know, a contact lens now that projects onto the back of your retina. And now we don't need screens. You know? Now we've disrupted screens. We no longer need screens in our life because we can really pull up a screen wherever we want. Cause all we have to do is play the tricks in our brains. And, you know, I might not be okay with that, but your argument is, well, if I'm happy, I don't really care how I'm happy. I'm going to tell you it's because of, you know, serotonin secreted a certain way that release neurons to fire a certain way right across my synapses. You're saying, yeah, but I'm just going to stimulate the serotonin, which will do all the same things. And I'm also just as happy. I don't know. I'm not saying one's better than the other, but I'm saying we're not having these conversations and we're starting to understand a lot of these things at a lot deeper level. And, you know, and again, breakthrough in that, which is very much, you know, a hard science might be the breakthrough we were looking for. They were missing in, you know, that Kurzweil has been missing, you know, over there in Google, spending all the money in the world to try to figure out, you know, how to reverse engineer a human brain so that he can put it in an artificial form of intelligence, or can we augment some of our brain? Or, you know, we have these limit, you know, very much limited biology. Like how do we, you know, open up more of that? Right now we do it through our hands. And that's very inefficient. We look at a screen, but you know, wires don't last very long nowadays. Everything started with wires and everything's wireless. So it'd make a lot more sense just to wirelessly connect and augment ourselves, you know, in a lot of these things. And, you know, I'm not saying that's yeah. overnight, and but it's, I mean, we're, we are working on these things. So any one of them could come at any time. And I, I don't, I don't, I just don't feel like we're having a whole ton of conversations. And I mean, the change, the change is happening. It's, I, it's all around us. Yeah. And the other thing I'm getting here is it's not necessarily about trying to pick which, because that's the rogue wave point, right? It's not necessarily trying to pick like which were, which wave is it going to be? Will it be the, you know, will it be the AI? Will it be CRISPR? You know, do we get to super intelligence through, you know, gene editing our own wetware or does it actually right. come through transhumanism? And, you know, so, so uh, like in some sense it doesn't, like that's not the conversation. It's not trying to pick the wave. It's like accepting that one or other of these waves might combine with another and then we, you know, and and just kind of being aware and sensing, developing yeah. that ability to sense what might be coming. Because then we can shape it, right? And we talked about it initially, we chatted quick, and I think the great example is it, not to anthropomorphize AI, so it's not going to be some robot, but when you when you look at ASI and, and the singularity, I mean, I don't know, it's too late at that point, in my opinion, right? Because at that point, the example is like, us trying to, you know, figure out what an AS, ASI world would be like, right? It would be like an ant trying to figure out what our world is like. I mean, the, 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 if, if, if it was even possible, the intelligence difference would be not, not even worth it, right? But, you know, maybe we get to forms of AGI, but, you know, that are, you know, that or maybe they're not as conscious as we thought and maybe we're okay with that right or, or maybe we're not because theoretically if you ever do get to agi then theoretically we could maybe take the next step um, and you know us 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 guessing all that would be like if ants guessed the future of humanity 50 years ago i mean when you when you're getting into that world it's it's so philosophical and theoretical and I didn't, I didn't want to touch on any of that. I love having those conversations, right? And again, like, you know, well, what if there's an AGI? It, it would kill us, you know? And we were talking about it, and I'm like, I don't know. You know, I go out back, and if I have an ant infestation, I kill all the ants. I, I don't hate ants. I have nothing against the ants. You know? They're just in my way. Um, I don't know. I don't know how all that world would play out when the technology's actually hit and all that stuff. And at the end of the book, I kind of think, I think the fun shot that, you know, what a world could look like or, you know, one of the things we might experience very much in the next decade or two, right? Not, 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 not in the 50 years uh, from now, but yeah, 
I feel like this this book is really just how do we what are the little things I can take away with now to affect that? I feel like everything is very much well. Here are the steps you need to do in one of those to your point, one of those silos, or here's this great theoretical future we might have, and I'm always stuck. Like, what about how do we get how do we get to in the middle of those two things? And a lot of it, the leading the leading items are here, right? We see them change. They're happening now. We can, you know, as a collective consciousness, as humanity here, our decisions and where we go is going to shape kind of those developments. Because um, they're not going to happen in, in silo and a single person in his room who suddenly, you know, has this breakthrough. But, you know, as we keep funding and hammering, you know, whether it's like we were saying, you know, the markets and publicly traded companies, I mean, governments are very open about it, right? Putin came out and said, whoever figures out AI wins the world. They can dominate the race. China said, well, we're all in. We're spending more than anyone in the world. I'm pretty sure the U.S. isn't going to be like, okay, you guys figure it out. So we've got governments investing in this quite a bit as well. Um, yeah, there's just there's there's so much of it that's happening so fast that you know it's going to appear one day and we're not probably having enough of those conversations. Right. But, but, but then, of course... But back to the 60s, right? Even if China gets there first with democratization, demonetization, it, it, it very quickly becomes something for all of us, right? Uh, in any case. So in some ways, you know, how important is it who wins, right, in the end? Yeah, yes, yes, and I'm going to go yes, and no. Um, so in some, when you democratize something, it's great because not everyone has access to it. But if you democratize something like a form of artificial intelligence, you can never catch up. If, if you hit exponential before I hit exponential, I can never catch you because your compounded doubling is always going to stay ahead of mine, right? So there are certain things that we don't want um, people to get too far ahead on uh, because they don't they don't give us more access to everything like you know mobile phone, but you know it's it's some of these these deeper bigger problems eventually, and that's you know, going down the rabbit hole into the, into the future there. But that would be the, the AGI argument would be that whoever hits AGI first wins because even though you might be two days behind me or two hours behind me, my, my compounded doubling will always outrun your compounded doubling in an exponential theory where in the past, we just throw more, you know, I'll just triple my investment. It doesn't, doesn't matter anymore. You can never catch the problem. Right, but I guess, I guess, and that becomes threatening were that development to be under the control of a single government who had a value system that that that, that, um, that conflicted with mine? But I guess that's not the only way it could emerge, presumably. Absolutely, right? yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, yeah. But and, and I think the other thing that you, you, the sort of final insight here that's coming to me is that we, unlike in the metaphor, right, where the rogue waves are out of our control right they're, they're being generated the, by the ocean and we can't control that or can we i guess <laughs> depending on how sort of spiritual you want to get but let's just assume that we have no control over the, the waves um yeah we are in, in the case of technology development we are the weaver and the web right we 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 do we do have you know an influence on as you say on how these waves form so that's um yeah, yeah. we very much have an influence but we can't we can't stop. We can't pump the brakes for lots of reasons. I, I unpack you in the book, right? But we, our economies are built off growth. If, if we stop, the economies collapse essentially. Um, so, but if you, if you remove even economics things, that's why surfing is a very good metaphor, right? You can you can make nice large cutbacks and you can slow down, but you can't just stop the wave. And we've kind of unleashed this 
we can't decouple any one of these. We can't just stop AI because like we mentioned, four other you know breakthroughs and four other other areas are going to augment the development of that AI and quantum computing and power of AI, which empowers you know all of our nano and bio and VR and AR kind of progression. And so we are very much able to somewhat shape them and that's complexity, right? You can like nudge along into an area, but we, we can't, we can't just decide we're not going to advance one of these and advance another one. Uh, yeah, yeah, so right, yeah. we, we can't, again, back to the predicting, we can't do that, but we, so for the foreseeable future, we are surfing. Um, we can't unfortunately put a pin in it, uh, but we can do your point, control it, right? Cut back, slow it down. Uh, you know, we can understand general possible directions where we believe a rogue wave might emerge, but you know, once it emerges, anyone's, anyone's, anyone's yeah. at that point. Good. God, well, it feels like we've uh, we've really been through like a lot of the the major concepts in the book. Is there anything like like we've missed? Like you wanted to touch on? Uh, no, I don't think there's anything we've missed. I think it's uh, I think it's it, it's a great again. It's not it's not an academic or a tech technical read. It's really just kind of pragmatically trying to put kind of things in perspectives. And you know, the early part is as we kind of talk through is more kind of setting the foundation, right? How we came to where we are. You build the surfing framework, and now you kind of take it in hand, and let's look at where we're at now and what's coming tomorrow. And then that final part is really, and here's what the future a decade might look like. And I think we were talking about that earlier, but I could probably rewrite that epilogue in two or three years because I will be completely wrong on half the things. Um, but I might be right on half as well, and that's kind of what's neat. And it's it's not so much, you know, what's right or what's wrong or being predictive. You know, to your point, which you started out started, but it's just. It's more around. We just need to be having the conversation. You don't need to be having the conversation, then you can live a shitty end of your life long. Yeah. Although the, the the community that keeps going back to my mind is the Amish, right? Who haven't even entered the first industrial revolution. Yeah, and they seem to be doing just fine. Right. They're probably a little happier, actually, if we look at. Yeah. Maybe exactly. Not. I don't know. Um, well, and it's neat because there are there are going to be these developing nations who very much are going to get to hop over the first couple of industrial revolutions and, and, and start here, right? Actually, in some ways, because they'll be more open to change, they'll do it in some ways faster, right? We, we have these big networks, sunk cost fallacies. We've invested in, you know, phone lines. We've fought mm. all these things forever. These other, they don't have the infrastructure. So they'll go straight to mobile. They'll engage it just as quick. And I really hope it brings up, you know, it, it, you know, and this is techno optimist, Eric, I guess, but, you know, it, it, it is, a, you know, some of the good things is it can, it can, it can bring, kind of all the world up to up to speed up to a similar playing field right whereas you know it's it, it, at the same time i know your counter argument is going to be like it's also creating a lot of uh you know i would say maybe more disproportionate in some ways and in some ways i think it'll bring it'll it'll bring worlds back together right suddenly we can everyone has a phone and you know through kind of a lot of the you know, the cognitive algorithms now, they can keep people engaged longer and more excited, which actually makes you learn more. And they've got, you know, these great apps and, and projects that they've rolled out in underprivileged part of the countries where children using their, their mobile devices um, can learn as much as an eight-hour class is now because what the AI is able to do with all our, our sensory reception and tracking your eye movement and all these things is it can, it can keep you engaged longer and like anything, like I'm, I'm very passionate about this and we could talk for the next four hours, although I don't think any of your listeners want to listen to four more hours of us, but um, that, 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 that engagement really helps with learning. So all of a sudden we've got these places where we, we, we could never take the time to build up all these schools and put up this infrastructure, but we might be able to 
to educate new ways, right? And bring a lot of these these future minds that are going to solve some of the greatest problems we've ever faced in our life with ease, probably 20 or 30 years from now on concepts that you and me can't even comprehend yet. So I think right. well, that's real positive out of it. Well, that's another another possibility that even considered that, you know, these sort of breakthroughs may not come, you know, but 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 just having access to so many more minds, right? you know, connected minds, you know, maybe part yeah, of connect, part, connected minds and living longer means you operation, you know, you, you work in your peak longer, right? Like, you know, Steve Jobs, imagine he had like 20 years of longer, you know, peak, you know, operation, same with yeah. Einstein and, you know, all these great minds. I get that. I'm guessing there would be a few people in his team. <laughs> no, right. It's like, yeah, so happy to be yeah. working for him. People who but work no, for I see might your not point. agree as much. <laughs> um, but the world, like, maybe we have whatever's after the iPhone, right? Um, so those, that, and that's kind of what the book tries to pull together at the end. It's not any one thing. It's all these things yeah. that are all just adding, adding, adding to the complexity, but they're adding to these ways. So now we're going to have more intelligent people, more minds, more educated minds, you know, from different cultures. And what's great about diversity is in, in the workplace, it's finally come, come to the front. The reason I... Strictly economically speaking, should I have a diverse team if I'm competing against you is because I, my team performs better, right? So I think in the past we were like, oh, maybe we should do it as a quota. It's actually shown that diversity create it, there's more innovation out of diversity, performance is better out of diversity. But now we're going to diversify, you know, entirely different parts of the globe that traditionally through our first, you know, three year industrial revolutions really had 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 no access and didn't build into it at all. And this fourth one's going to just have. Again, just another example. I'm just throwing another wave in this pot. Who knows where they're going to collide or hit, but there is going to be rogue ones coming out. Yeah, although we did have a, a, a guy who um, has developed a lot of thinking around cognitive diversity, and he was making the case that it's cognitive diversity that matters in performance. Um, yeah. Uh, which obviously is a not potentially a, a non-PC, uh, you know, perspective, but uh, yeah. It's a non-PC perspective that develops through PCs, though. Much the same way you and me are talking right now, we can have a relationship without ever seeing each other in person. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, so now I'm throwing networks in there and a lot of these other things. And, you know, I just, the more I kept going through it, the more I just noticed it's really everywhere. It's happening everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, no, this is uh, this is this is great. It's uh, I've certainly learned a lot during the conversation, and I hope uh, <laughs> I hope some of our listeners have. And uh, yeah, and of course, if you want to dive deeper, then uh, the book is available. Um, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll just mention so it's surfing rogue waves. Uh, yeah, a compass to navigating the disruption of the fourth industrial revolution. Uh, yeah, and it's as as you said, uh, Eric, it's an easy uh, it's an easy read. Um, yeah, and just. I love I love the factoids, you know. There's some great, uh, you know, there's some great nuggets in there. Uh, yeah, and the framework as as well, of course, is another way of thinking about how we, um, yeah, navigate the the world. Yeah, and again, I love I just love talking about it because the more I I speak to different people, they have completely different, you know, that when they put on those that lens, it's they have such cool different takeaways that I had never thought of. So, uh, you know. If anyone, if anyone does skim or read it, I'd, I'd love to hear kind of some of your thoughts. Right. Okay. Um, so there's the book. Is there anywhere else, anywhere else you'd point people um, other than the book or is, you know, is that the place to? Yeah. Eric pb.me E-R-I-C pb.me is the website from there. Um, you know, the, the 
Instagram and Twitter and Facebook kind of social handles are all there. PB.me as well. And yeah, the book's available at Amazon um, in a lot of kind of the, the retailers. It's we were just chatting. It's being restocked as we speak, so it'll be available by the time this comes out. Um, but yeah, everything from and then even even in America, from the Walgreens and Targets and Barnes and Nobles to the Indigo chapters in Canada, and it's getting more and more. Uh, Amazon, of course, was getting picked up by more and more of um, a lot of uh, the European kind of places. So um, yeah. yeah. So you thinking this is like your future now as like an author and a speaker and the next book is like, is it, is this <laughs> your road wave you're now surfing? Yeah. You know what? I don't know. I'm just surfing right now. So I'm going to see <laughs> where the next one kind of comes and take it from there. You know, I had that, I, had, I was asked that the other, the other day and I thought about that and cause they, you know, and this was someone who's very, my, it drives my wife nuts and she's much better than me. She's a good planner. Right. And, and this person was very much a time. Like, well, what do you mean? What's next? What's this? What's that? And, you know, he, I could see him thinking in sequentials and I'm like, I don't know, I'm riding this wave and I'm going to see where the complexity spits me out. And, you know, I might wipe out, I might not, and I'm going to get up and kind of catch the next one. So I haven't, I haven't put too much more thought other than I'm just kind of really enjoying it right now. And I just trying to get the word out. And I, I love um, being able to take opportunities like this and, Kind of speak with great minds like yourself who kind of think through and rechallenge things and, and and have kind of a great listener base that you know appreciates a lot of this. So thank you yeah. for having me. Good. No, thank you. Awesome. All right. Well well thanks again. And uh yeah. Next one. Cheers. The Being Human podcast was brought to you by First Human. For more on First Human's human focused coaching and leadership programs head to firsthuman.com.